tell you right now, I'm going over today and we're already running behind, so I'm sorry. Um, but hey, it's our first day back, let's like take advantage, right? Um, you know, it, it's, it's strange, um, if, you don't, if you don't know, I'm a junior high school teacher during the week and Friday was my last day. And we've been doing hybrid since October, where I've had kids in front of me and kids on my screen, screens, multiple screens, and it's been exhausting. And so Friday I was like, yes, I'm done with hybrid. And then I walked in this morning and I remember as soon as I got here, I was like, oh wait, I'm actually not done with hybrid because we're doing hybrid now, which is awesome because I'm a veteran, I'm a seasoned veteran, I got this. So I'm not even phased by it. Um, but I'm really excited to jump into this series, What the Heck is the Church? I had a different name for it. I switched out heck for something else, but we edited it, so heck is what we're going to stick with, all right? But I do, like, this is something that's been on my mind for over a year. When, when, cause I, when I look at the church as a whole, and, and let me define it for you really quick, because the word church we use for a lot of different things. I wish we had different words for it. Because when we talk about going to church on Sunday mornings, right, we're like, we're going to the 601 building. This is our local expression of the church, but we say church. But also when we talk about like the body, of, the body of Christians, the body of believers in the world or in the country or wherever, we also use the word church for that. So I want you to know that as I go through today, I'm going to try to be specific. But when I say the word church most of the time today, it's going to be talking about the overall umbrella of the church in the United States of America. That's sort of where I'm, where I'm at today. And if I talk about our expression, I hope I'm going to say our, our local expression or One Life City Church, just so that we're not confused about that, because it can be confusing. And another place we can look to to kind of understand about the church is, of course, we go to the Bible. The Bible is always a good place to start. And when the, when the Bible writers, especially in the New Testament, when Paul talks about the churches, he uses this word, ecclesia, which is literally, it was, that word was used before there was a church. It was just, it's a gathering, a gathering where people were called out of their homes to assemble for a specific purpose. Usually it was like politicians and philosophers would gather together to discuss things of the time. But then later, it becomes this word that's used for the followers of what the, the biblical writers call the way, which I think is awesome, the way. The way of following Jesus. These people who decided to follow Jesus came together and they assembled. And that kind of became known as the church. Now obviously that word church, and the church as we know it, kind of evolved. It's evolved from then to now and it's still evolving. You look at all like the church history and the split and the schisms, and, and now there's all these denominations. And so there's been a lot of things that have happened with church history, but what we want to focus on over these next five weeks is we want to re-examine the role of the church within our context of claiming to be Christian. That's what we're going to look at. Because what it has morphed into, especially in the United States, is this institution that promotes some really anti-Jesus things. I mean, look around, like nationalism and religious rights. It's kind of become synonymous with like conspiracy theories and anti-science and things that really harm people. And the U.S. American church has even become a political force or even like sort of like a pawn that's like an ally to a particular political party designed to maintain power structures that, let's be honest, really benefit white people. I've been reading books about this lately too. That's just like, oh man, like what I, the, the inheritance culture that I have as a white evangelical, there's some things that I did not know about this culture. I'm having to learn and kind of repent from some of those things that I've been involved with. 
And the church operating in this manner has caused a great deal of pain and even trauma to people both inside and outside of its membership. You know, I'm going to take my mask off. Is that okay? I didn't know if I, that it would be much easier. Thank you. Um, and so I knew about this series for like months. And I've been excited about it. I knew I was kicking it off. So what I did um, is I started reaching out to some people from, from, my, from, from my past, from my present, high school friends, college um, classmates, uh, teammates from back in the day, and even colleagues from now that I work with. And, but what I did is I reached out to people who I know are not, who don't identify as evangelical Christians. Or maybe they once did, but they don't anymore. And I reached out, I'm going to get emotional, and I just asked them this question. So either you know, I typed it to them in an email or in a, on a social media post, a DM, or I met with them in person and talked about it, which was really difficult. Because the question I asked them is this. What do you think of when you hear the term the church? Or more specifically, if it's helpful, the church in the United States of America. And I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to show you the answers. And not all of them, because I reached out to like 20 people. And I said, you could write me a word, a sentence, a paragraph, or an essay. This would be funny, I said essay. They all wrote essays. <laughs> <laughs> and what hit me was this is something they needed to talk about. And the conversations I had face-to-face -face were so uncomfortable, because I felt so terrible. Because they know what I identify as. And this is going to take longer than probably you're comfortable with. I'm going to show you a lot. And I know, I'm sorry, time, I know. But I think this is so important. And so I'm going to put them up here. I'm going to read them to you. And I want the words here because I want you to see the words. Not as a like, not as like trying to make you feel guilty. That's not it. But we need to know how our brothers and sisters outside of this feel. And so here's the first one. I'm going to give you one word. Hypocritical. From being a missionary kid to Bible college days to being a worship leader and a youth pastor, I've now had to start questioning the whole thing because much of that world I experienced did not align with the Jesus I see in the Gospels. Now as a parent, I'm determined to allow my kids to think critically, be skeptical about everything in a healthy way, and love their fellow human no matter what, with no conversion agenda, no inner ingrained thought that they are chosen or better than others not judging others for sinning, all things that years of being embedded in Christian culture never taught me and never even allowed me space to explore. Next one. Remember the question, what, what do you think of when you hear the word church? Judgmental, not critical thinkers, no gray area, uses the Bible out of context as a tool that ends up oppressing the marginalized. I can't seem to get myself to go back. I tend up inside. I don't know if I ever want to go back. My friend is even picking up my daughter to go to church. I'm just not sure I can believe any, what I believe anymore, but I'm certain that the way of the American evangelical church is not for me. And I was fully immersed in it all my life, all of it. I could talk about this for days. I've had several therapy sessions dealing with spiritual abuse. Next one. I think of people who've lost sight of Jesus and what it means to be a Christ follower, a.k.a. Christian. They refuse to see the image of God in others who are outside their comfortable circle. I think of the harm the institution the church has caused to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. 
and the harm of the church's complicit silence in matters of social and racial justice, and the shaming and guilt poured out on sinners by means of purity culture. Next one. I just don't get it. Most of the Christians I've known have been judgmental, damning, and self-righteous. During a global pandemic, when, my medical, when medical professionals, as many friends who are nurses, were telling us of the unprecedented numbers of the sick and dying, the church was the first institution that I saw to denounce the mask mandate. And the reason was because it threatened their rights and freedoms. I think it showed the true colors of the church, honestly. No offense, but that doesn't even seem friendly, let alone loving. Next one. I think of the political backing of the church. I was taught to be a good Christian is to vote Republican without question, vote for guns, go vote, vote for suppressing votes of minority communities, vote for racism, yeah, I said it, vote for misogyny, homophobia, xenophobia, vote for white nationalism. The big C church is pushing people away from God's love rather than drawing them in. It's heartbreaking. Next one. When I think of the church, I think of bigotry, hypocrisy, and doctrinal culture. Sadly, words like grace, service, and humility don't fit the church. I don't want to give like any hints of who these people are, but for this next one, this is someone's daughter, so this is like a 14-year-old. This is what, what she said. My friends told me that when they think of people that go to church, they automatically think of people that are racist, misogynistic, homophobic, basically Trump supporters. Next one. I think it's funny, not ha-ha funny, but ironic funny, that church people are always telling me about unconditional love when the loving God they preach is so angry and violent that he must have the most peaceful and loving person ever to have lived, killed, to appease his wrath. An angry God begets an angry following. So is it love your neighbor or shoot your neighbor? It can't be both. That would be a fraud. And that's why I can't believe in your God. And the last one. <clears throat> this is someone I spoke to from the LGBTQ community. I grew up Presbyterian. I didn't find love or acceptance, only people saying, I'll pray for you. That was the nicest thing anyone could ever say to me, as if I'm so terrible and unacceptable, the only answer to my wrongness was to pray for me. It felt so condescending. If these are God's representatives in the world, then I want nothing to do with him. In fact, I don't believe that a God could be this cruel, this exclusive, this bigoted. So I've chosen to believe that there is no God. That was a face-to-face -face conversation. <laughs> That was tough. That was tough. Now you might say, you could. You could say that these people were all jaded, right? Because maybe they've been burned by the church, maybe they had some experience, but. Or maybe you say like, these are outliers in the data, which I assure you they're not. Every person I wrote to, every person I talked to had the same thing. But it doesn't matter what we think about that. It doesn't matter, because here's the point, and here's what we need to be, start sorting out in the next five weeks. If the church is doing what it's designed to do, then no one would ever say these things about the church. In fact, if the church was doing what it was designed to do, wounded people would not be running away from the church with scars and with trauma. Instead, they'd be running towards the church with eagerness and a sincere hope for healing and acceptance. So the goal for this series is to begin to answer these three questions. What is the role of the church in the world? What is the purpose of us gathering together? And what does the church, existing as it was meant to exist, look like to the world around it?
guarantee you we're not going to answer all these today. We might be able to hit on the first one. So let's start, let's go to the Bible. That's always a great place to go. And we're going to go to Acts 2, which is really good timing because last week, if you know your church calendar, last week was Pentecost. And Pentecost is kind of known as the birthday of the church. That's when, if you remember, um, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples who are in Jerusalem. They're, you know, they're waiting because Jesus had died like probably seven weeks ago um, from that time. And so they get the Holy Spirit, and then Peter goes outside, and he preaches to all the Jews that are present for the festival that Jesus, who they had just been complicit in executing, was indeed the rescuing Messiah that the Hebrew prophets had said would come from the line of David. And, this is important, that he is the Lord. We're going to talk about that word Lord in just a moment. And then the people that were there asked him, what should we do, Peter? Like, oh, man, this is blowing our minds. What should we do? And he says, repent, which is just a way to say, change your way of thinking in the world and be baptized into this new way of being. And then they begin to meet up together. And there we have the church. Verse 42 in uh, Acts 2 says this, what were they doing? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And this is going to be kind of our guide verse for this whole series. We're going to keep coming back to this because there's four things in there. Today we're going to, or I'm sorry, next week, Elliot's going to talk about fellowship, the koinonia in the Greek. Um, we'll talk about the prayers or the prayers that they talk about here. Nan's going to um, bring us the word about the breaking of bread. And then we'll have a panel discussion on that last week, which I'm pretty stoked for. But today, we're going to stick with this first part of the verse that says, devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. When we hear this, I don't think I'm wrong, when we hear this, a lot of times we equate this to just hearing about God or like hearing the Bible or being open to listening to sermons. If I'm devoting myself to the apostles' teachings, I'll sit through a sermon. That's, kind of, that's how I kind of grew up thinking about it. But this isn't right. <laughs> the word for devoting is proskarti, sorry, proskartereho. Proskartereho is the Greek word. And it means to continue to do something or to, burst, to persevere with intense effort. It's a word that demands action. So in this case, we have to ask, for what action were these people who began gathering devoting themselves? For what action? Well, the writer tells us, to the apostles' teachings, which must lead us to another question. And the question is, what are the apostles' teachings? This is where you get to use that, if you grew up in the church, the Sunday school answer. Like, if you don't know the answer, what do you say in Sunday school? Anybody know? Yes, you got it. Jesus. We get to use it right here. What are they teaching? They're teaching Jesus. They're teaching the ways of Jesus. This group of apostles had walked with Jesus. They'd questioned him. They'd been confused by him. But now, they finally get it. They're going to teach about it. And the first thing they're teaching, and we know because it's right here in Acts 2, Verse 36, the first thing they're teaching is that Jesus is Lord. This is what it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, or both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus who you crucified. Church, there are huge implications to this. To say that Jesus is Lord, we just say that and we're like, oh, Jesus is Lord, and we move on. This is huge. There are political implications of this, which we don't have time to get into today, but I'll tell you this, it was dangerous for these people to say Jesus is Lord. It was revolutionary. Lord in the Greek is kurios. It's one who is sovereign, the one with the power. In first century Roman-occupied territory, who is Lord? 
emperor, Caesar is Lord. And there are consequences to declaring anything that's contrary to that. And if Caesar is the sovereign one with power over me, then I don't just say that Caesar is Lord and do whatever I want. No, I adhere to the way of being that Caesar has instituted. I mostly do this out of fear because I know what the Roman Empire has the authority to do to me if I disrupt the power structure. Crucifixion was not just for Jesus. Crucifixion was a way to show people do not mess with the power structure. But, but if I instead decide that Jesus is Lord, and pay attention to this, this is kind of the thread we're going to pull that's going to start unraveling the whole thing. If I say that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that Jesus is Lord, I'm now going to adhere to a way of being in the world that Jesus has instituted and revealed. See, a lot of the U.S. American church will show up on a Sunday morning and say Jesus is Lord, and they will sing Jesus is Lord, but that's it. The way of being in the world remains unchanged. This was not the case with the early church. They devoted themselves, remember an action word, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching that Jesus is Lord, and this absolutely changes their ways of being in the world. I mean, no doubt they've been taught by the disciples something like John 13, 34, that says, when Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you may also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And this first church in Jerusalem begins to show extravagant love. Chapter 2 of Acts again, verse 44. All the believers were together, and they had all things in common. They would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. Two chapters later, Acts 4, verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were one of heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them down at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each to the extent that they had a need. And here's where it gets a little bit juicy. See, there were power structures in place during this time, both due to the Roman occupation and from oppression rooted in religious elitism. And those who had proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, they were no longer going to have it. <laughs> They had determined, presumably from the apostles' teachings, that systems in which some people are deemed as less than or insignificant or unable to care for themselves or in need are not congruent with the way of being that Jesus had brought into the world. So they came together as a group, as their ecclesia, and they did something about it. They actively began to dismantle a system that oppresses people, not through violence, not through insurrection, but through self-sacrifice and love of neighbor. Now that's beautiful. That's the church being the church. And it's so interesting that the church here begins to understand what it is to experience generosity and faithfulness and love and kindness. And what do we recognize those things as? If we look in Galatians, those are the fruits of the Spirit. And what does Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? How, are we gonna, how, how on that last day are, those people gonna, are people going to be identified? You will be known by your what? By your fruit. Be known by our fruit. The people will be known by their fruit. 
these institutions will be known by their fruits. And what is the next thing that Jesus says on that Sermon on the Mount? It's in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Listen to what Jesus says. Oh, my goodness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Think about the U.S. American church as a whole. Think about the responses that I showed you in the beginning today. Where is the fruit? Is Jesus really Lord? Or is that just something we sing in our songs while ignoring the injustices and systems of oppression that continue to permeate our U.S. American culture? Like, we have to ask, is the church generous? Because God is ultimate generosity. Generosity cannot know selfish greed. And peace and violence cannot know each other, no matter how you're justifying the violence. I never knew you. Is the church inclusive? Because what I read about is that God is ultimate inclusion. And inclusion cannot know exclusion. You know, they don't go together. I never knew you. And really, as the church, if we want to know what it is to bear good fruits, we need not look any further than the cross. After all, I'm told to pick up my cross if I'm going to follow Jesus. And it's so countercultural to think this way, but the cross illuminates for us what I heard one scholar refer to as the beauty that saves the world. Jesus at the cross lays down all of his rights. He doesn't begin to fight back. He forgives. His last words are not, avenge me. His last words are, forgive them. Jesus doesn't rise from the dead and immediately put together an army and march on Rome. There'd be nothing beautiful about that. That would be using old creation tactics to try to create new creation spaces. And that doesn't work. And it never will. Almost all of Jesus' teachings and parables deliver this message. New creation, the kingdom of God is different. It's upside down. In fact, the Hebrew scriptures tell us how humans immersed in old creation ways of being continue to get it wrong, and it all leads up to Jesus, whose death doesn't magically fix all the old creation problems and wrong ways of being human, but whose life that led to his death shows us the power that comes with love, humility, forgiveness, generosity, sacrifice, and it leads to a quality of resurrection life that will be experienced in the age to come, in the new creation, but it's also accessible right here and right now, and this is the eternal life that the church rarely talks about. 
When people are on the receiving end of generosity, when people are shown grace, when people encounter radical forgiveness, they begin to experience what it's like when Jesus is Lord. When Jesus is Lord, that's what heaven is. This is the euangelion. This is the good news. This is the announcement that the kingdom of heaven is here, and we get to join in. But this kingdom doesn't look like the empires of the world, and neither should the church. It's far more beautiful, and it recognizes the humanity of all people. What if we, what if we as the church just started with that, with recognizing humanity? What if we gave people food because they were hungry? No agenda, no I'll give you food if you take my chalk about hell. Just I see you're hungry, here's some food, full stop. What if we found a way for sick people to get medical care? You know, the early church was all over this. Not you get medical care because you have a job or you deserve it. Not, not let's help you get medical care as long as it doesn't cost me anything, as long as my taxes don't go up. Just, I see that you're sick, and I want to help you. What if the church decides to, to value life? Not just unborn baby life, but life. What if we say decide to also value the mothers, value the lives of single mothers? Or of immigrants, or of the incarcerated, or of those who lack housing? What if we valued lives so much that we decided to stop promoting killing people as a means of punishment for killing people? What if we stood against violence and even laid down our own literal weapons as if to say self-preservation is not as important as peace on earth? What if we repent of the harm we've done to the LGBTQ community? Or for the ways evangelicalism has upheld and perpetuated racism, white supremacy, xenophobia, misogyny? What if we did all of this without any agenda of saving souls, without sweating about somehow losing grip on power, without worrying about if my rights are being impeded upon? What if the church stopped caring so much about its status and image in the world? and started to care more about the Imago Dei of the world's inhabitants. That, my friends, is a church devoted to the apostles' teaching. I love this quote. I'm going to give you two quotes right now. One is from Richard Rohr. He says, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. And then from Walter Brueggemann, the formation of an alternative community with an alternative consciousness is so that the dominant community may be criticized and finally dismantled. But more than dismantling, the purpose of the alternative community is to enable a new human being to be made. That's formation. This is what the early church did. They decided to enter into the practice of the better. Jesus showed them what was wrong. Here's how we can do it better. They decided to let go of status, and power and wealth and to challenge the status quo in order to be formed into something beautiful, catch this, something lasting, something that would bear, bear fruit, something recognizable 
where God in all of his generosity and forgiveness and love and compassion and peace says, ah, I know you. I know you. Church, there's so much, there's so much more. I, w- I was going to go into church history. I was going to talk about Constantine and split. Like, there was so much I wanted to say, but I, I know I'm, I've already killed the clock. Um, but this is why we're spending five weeks here. I don't think we're able to answer all three questions that I posed earlier, but I think we can start to respond to the first one. What is the role of the church in the world? What is the, like, what is the role of the church in the world? I think it's to love people. I think if we're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, I think that's it. I think it's taking care of each other. I think it's taking care of each other here in our local expression of the church. I think it's recognizing each other's needs, and and I've seen that at One Life City Church. I've experienced it, and I've seen it. But I think it's also taking care of people outside our doors as well, with no hidden agenda. I think it's laying down our rights and maybe our self-righteousness, for me, for sure, laying down self-righteousness and practicing empathy. I think it's being generous. I think it's like forgiving and then not seeking revenge. I think it's being all-inclusive. I'm just naming attributes of Jesus here. That's all I'm doing. What is the role of the church in the world? Maybe it's to exist as if Jesus is really Lord. (laughs) And maybe that actually is the beauty that saves the world. (laughs) You know, the discussion I had with from from those conversations that I showed you earlier. One of the face-to-face conversations was with a a person from the LGBTQ community. And after we got done talking, he like looked at me and he said, no one from your world has ever talked to me like this before. No one's ever said sorry. No one's ever showed me like kindness. And this person looked at me and said, this almost makes me want to believe that there might be a God. But yeah, as a church, we just shun people. You don't fit our, like, purity code. So think about those conversations I showed you. And then look at this. Here's a conversation from the first century when the church was just getting underway. This is from a dude named um, Aristides. He was writing to the Roman Emperor Hadrian about the Christians. This is what he says about the Christians. It's the Christians, O Emperor, who have sought and found the truth, for they acknowledge God. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them. And in this way, they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. This, O emperor, is the rule of life of the Christians. And this is their manner of life. You know, (laughs) 
it's possible to get there again. Pastor Vanessa, who's also my wonderful partner in life, recently represented us at a Fullerton Act meeting. Fullerton Act is um, a group of faith leaders from, from our community, from our city that get together. And what they try to do is tangibly like craft and construct ways to love their neighbors and bring about peace and justice in our city. And it's beautiful. It's all these like different expressions of the church making that umbrella of church in our city and really trying to figure out, figure out ways to love people in our community. And we have some friends on the Fullerton Act that have been working on this for years, like different projects, trying to like trying to work on racial reconciliation in our city, trying to work on homelessness in our city. And they've been like struck down so many times, like just trying, there's structures that get in the way. But when Vanessa came home and she, she told me about her meeting, there was like this hope that some of the things they've been working on for years are starting to come to fruition. And I, I took this from, from, the on the side of, from the on side of Grace Instagram post, and it says this, this is what Vanessa wrote. This is why I can't give up on the church. Even though the church has done so much harm, which I won't deny or excuse, when the church is chasing after the heart of Jesus, loving its neighbors, cultivating peace, and working towards justice, it's a beautiful thing. It's a force for good, and it's unstoppable. I'm going to pray for the church right now. God, guide us in the path of discipleship so that as you have blessed us, we may be a blessing for others, bringing the promise of the kingdom near by our words and our deeds. Open our hearts to your power moving around us, between us, and within us, until your glory is revealed in our love of both friends and enemies, in communities transformed by justice and compassion and healing, all that is good.